I'm George Anderson. We Presbyterians are big on grace and forgiveness. Yet, does that mean that families can't be broken by betrayal? That people can't be hurt by gossip? Or does it mean that God's going to make sure that we never really harm our earth or destroy each other? Does grace eliminate consequences? The passages I studied this week compelled me to address these questions, and I hope that you benefit from the sermon that came of the struggle. Thank you for listening. Let us pray. Holy God, if there is anything said from this pulpit that is not according to your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe and believing obey. Amen. Every Sunday, ministers of many faith traditions preach from a schedule of readings that include two passages from the Old Testament and two passages from the New Testament. Rachel and Elizabeth often preach from the lectionary. I bet that when Jen is preaching regularly, she will too. You can take the gal out of the Episcopal Church, but you can't take the Episcopal Church out of the gal. Early in the ministry, I did too, but it's been decades since I've done so regularly. I once got scolded for not doing so from this very pulpit. One of our very best Edmonds lecturers, Dr. Luke Timothy Johnson, a Roman Catholic, a church in which following the lectionary is mandatory, found out that I didn't follow the lectionary, and he spent five minutes before his sermon ratting on me, explaining what the lectionary is and why I should be preaching from it. No one said anything to me about it, though. He gave a wonderful sermon and lectures on the living Jesus that still stick with me, and I think that was all anyone wanted to talk about. Well, today, Dr. Johnson would be pleased with me because I will preach on all four of today's readings. The passages are listed at the end of a bulletin note. Not wanting to overwhelm you with readings, though, I'll read only two. Our Old Testament lesson comes from Deuteronomy. See? I have set before you today life and prosperity, death and adversity. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I am commanding you today by loving the Lord your God, walking in his ways and observing the commandments, decrees and ordinances, then you shall live and become numerous. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to possess. But if your heart turns away and you do not hear, but are led astray to bow down to other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to enter and to possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Choose life so that you and your descendants may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying Him and holding fast to Him. For that means life to you and length of days, so that you may live in the land that the Lord swore to give to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Our New Testament lesson comes from 1 Corinthians. And so, brothers and sisters, 
I could not speak to you as spiritual people, but rather as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for solid food, and even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For as long as there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not of the flesh, and behaving according to human inclinations? For when one says, I belong to Paul, and another says, I belong to Apollos, are you not merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. The one who plants... And the one who waters have a common purpose, and each will receive wages according to the labor of each. For we are God's servants, working together. You are God's field. You are God's building. The word of the Lord. As I call to worship, we use the lectionary's psalm reading, which begins by saying, Happy are those whose way is blameless who keep God's laws and who seek Him with their whole heart, who do no wrong but walk in His ways. Basically, the beginning of the psalm is a beatitude, a blessing. Happy are those who do what Moses told us to do. To know what Moses told us to do, all you need to do is read 21 chapters of instructions in the book of Deuteronomy. In those chapters, Moses taught wilderness wanderers how to behave. He taught them how to behave when they crossed the Jordan River and become a settled people in the land that they would inherit. And if you read his teachings, you'll see that his instructions are not unlike how many of us were taught to behave as children. I'll use my own experience, which I bet is a lot like some of yours. Moses teaches about worship. So did my mom. Dad was preaching, so she taught me how to dress for church and how to behave in church. She couldn't make me listen to my father's sermons, but she could make me sit quietly or try to make me. When it came time to sing, she ran her finger along the verses until I learned to follow on my own. She taught me when to stand and when to sit, and she let me put money in the offering plate when it passed down the aisle. If I didn't behave... I could expect a thump on the back of my head, or worse, a lecture when I got home. Well, Moses taught the wanderers how to worship. Now, his specific instructions were different from much of what my mom taught. I mean, we don't offer burnt offerings today, but the spirit is the same. Moses wanted his people not to miss the opportunity of the Sabbath to worship. He wanted the people to put God first, to come to worship, ready to pray, ready to give, and do so with this deep sense of awe, reverence, a readiness to hear something specific about God's claim on their lives. My parents also taught me how to behave outside of church. They taught me what could get me arrested. Murder, stealing, not obeying street signs. And they also taught me about personal ethics, what it is that we Andersons just don't do. Andersons are Christian, they told me, so Andersons don't lie. They don't cheat. 
They don't steal. Now, I lied a lot as a child. I didn't give it up till middle school. (laughs) But I knew it was wrong. And there are certain things that Andersons are to do. Speak to elders with respect. Do your chores. Help others when they need help. And so it was with Moses. Read his instructions. And you see that he talks about what can get you in trouble with the law, what can get you in trouble with family members and neighbors. And he included things like lying under oath, stealing what belongs to others, violating worship boundaries or relationship boundaries, gossip that hurts another's reputation, cleaning out your field at harvest so there's nothing left for the starving, Or taking someone's tools as collateral for a loan because they need those tools to work to pay back that loan. In this realm of personal ethics, in this realm of legal ethics, while there are still many differences between then and now, what is really striking is about how how so much of it hasn't changed or shouldn't have changed. Don't lie. Don't cheat. Don't steal, don't kill, don't hurt another just to benefit yourself. We should also note the threats. That's not something we in a Presbyterian church do very often. I mean, every Sunday in worship, we follow the prayer of confession with an assurance of pardon, letting us know that our sins will not be held against us. But you heard Moses. He was not so quick to jump to that assurance. God may ultimately be the one who reconciles sinners, maybe even the entire creation. But Moses wanted to be clear that there are life consequences for bad behavior and for good behavior. Remember my mother's head thump if I misbehaved in church? Moses was all about the thump. Live right, you'll live well, but live wrong. You'll suffer the consequences and they can be harsh. Are these threats necessary? Well, they shouldn't be. I mean, Moses himself said they should not be necessary. In his sermon, he said that people are to love God with all of their heart, soul, and strength. And he referenced that commandment in our passage. Love should be the motivation to do what is right. But Moses understood human nature far too well to believe that people's hearts can be washed as clean as newly fallen snow and stay that way. Because pride and shame and greed and arrogance and cruelty stain so easily. And there are stains that are hard to wash from the fabric of one's heart. They stain even your children and your grandchildren. Moses says. They can ruin an entire community, Moses says. They can ruin a nation, he says, before they even become one. So remember that when you become a nation and don't let lust for power and wealth make you forget who you are. Or there will be consequences. (laughs) Good thing We aren't stuck with the law of the Old Testament, but have the grace and forgiveness of the New Testament, right? Good thing we're not stuck with Moses, but that we have Jesus. Well, before we jump too quick to an assurance of pardon, we might want to listen to our gospel lesson. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is preaching a teaching sermon based on Moses' teaching sermon and... 
His expectations are even higher and his threats more dire. Jesus' expectations are higher because he not only expects his followers to act right, but to be right. He wants unstained heart so that Moses' greatest commandment can be kept, that God be loved with all of one's heart, soul, and strength. And Jesus piles on even that commandment because he adds loving God with all one's mind as well. Jesus knows that faith can just be about appearances. And he's concerned that we only do what is right when everyone is looking at us and we're afraid of getting into trouble. He wants us to do right even when no one is looking, when only our conscience is our guide. For instance, Jesus says, you have heard it said, and he's talking about Moses saying it, you have heard it said that you shouldn't murder. I tell you, don't even hate. Jesus says, you have heard not to speak harshly about another. I'm telling you, you shouldn't defame another. And you should fear the fires of hell if you do. Yeah, Jesus goes there. And when he's not threatening the fires of hell, he threatens prison. Read the sermon. Jesus says, if you come to worship wanting to get right with God and you're not right with a brother or sister, then leave your gift at the altar and go work it out. If you're not right with God, if you're not right with the community. Jesus said, you have heard not to commit adultery, but I'm telling you not even to lust. And Jesus wants his people to stand behind what they say, behind what they promise and in telling the truth. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Otherwise, he says, you're just doing the devil's work. Now, I'll admit that part of me likes what Jesus is saying because I really don't like it when people talk and act in ways that hurt others especially when they do it to make themselves look better or feel better or to pad their pockets or to increase their power and influence. And then I remember the stains. Millie and I loved the bedspread on our bed. I accidentally spilled shoe polish on it and we had to throw it away. I'm loved, but I'm stained, and I don't want to be thrown away. So then to hear Jesus channel not only Moses' instructions, but also his threats and warnings, hell, prison. Now this is the place in the sermon where a good Presbyterian pastor who believes in God's grace as I do might jump to the resurrection and say that in the end, God's will to reconcile is stronger than even our will to sin, that we all fall short of Jesus' expectations. But God forgives even those who crucify his son. But if I'm to truly remain within the wisdom of our lectionary passages, today's not that Sunday. Neither Moses or Jesus wants us always to jump so quickly to our own personal assurance of pardon and the affirmation that all will be well. Their love for their people doesn't keep them from making clear that good and evil have consequences. The Apostle Paul makes that clear in our passage from 1 Corinthians. I mean, Paul is all about grace. He is the theologian of grace. He is all about people following the law of love rather than being captive to the fear of consequences. 
But here's why theologians talk about justification, saved by grace, and sanctification, growing in grace. In our passage, he's telling Corinthian Christians who have been justified to be sanctified. He's telling them to grow up. Here's the situation. The Corinthian Christians have declared their faith in God. They have committed their lives to following Jesus. They want to be kind, and they want to be kind for kindness' sake. They want to be just for justice' sake. And yes, they want to be good for goodness' sake. But they can't always pull it off. They're Christian, but they're human too. And parties have formed within the Corinthian community. We follow Paul, some say. We follow Apollos, others say. And in taking sides against each other, it's not really about Paul and Apollos. It's about them. It's about them wanting to be in and being right. Paul and Apollos are both about building the church. But what they're really about is acting out of their immaturity. They are acting like children. Now, before anyone takes offense on behalf of children and protests that Jesus said that we must all be like children to enter the kingdom of God, you know what Paul is saying. He's not talking about being childlike in your curiosity and trust and wonder and willingness to imagine and believe. He is talking about childishness, which adults often pull off better than children, talking and acting as if they hadn't been taught better. The way Paul says it is this, you're still not ready for solid food. You are supposed to have each other's best interests at heart, but instead there is jealousy and quarreling and unkindness among you. It's not in our passage, but Paul later tells them in this same letter that when he was a child, he thought like a child, he acted like a child, but in growing up, he gave up childish ways. And then he riffs on Moses and Jesus' greatest commandment to love, saying that love isn't feeling, it is doing. It is not being jealous or boastful or arrogant or rude or rejoicing in the wrong. It is rejoicing in the right and doing it, being patient, being kind, and never stop being patient and being kind. The common theme that I found in all four of the passages is what I am going to call today spiritual maturity. I suggest that given the guidance of our passages, there are stages of spiritual maturity. Stage one, do what is right or be punished. I could talk about Martin Luther's civil use of the law and his theological belief that those who do not know God still need to know they can't get away with harming others. Instead, I will quote his namesake, Martin Luther King Jr., when he said, It may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can keep him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. Stage two. Do what is right because you want to do what is right. Isn't that what Jesus said? Let good actions flow from converted hearts, from good hearts. It is not enough that we should do the right thing because we're scared of getting caught. We're scared of getting trouble. It should be because our minds, our hearts, our wills should reflect, should be 
the mind and heart and will of Jesus. And so when we see suffering, a converted heart should want to do something to relieve the suffering. When we see that there is a problem between others and and a brother or sister or neighbor, we should want to do what we can to heal that breach. And when it seems that no one is watching or it seems that we can get away with it, we should still find it repellent to tell the lie or cheat or spread gossip that harms another's reputation. Stage three, do what is right because it is right, whether you want to or not. And why? Why does it really matter when God is a God of grace? Because you've seen history. You've seen what happens. You've looked around you. You know that there are consequences, that God may forgive, but we can do harm. That God may heal, but we can wound others. And God may reconcile, but we can break other people's hearts. And if we let it get out of hand... We can break other people's lives. But when we live in a way that follows Moses and Jesus' instructions because we're afraid not to, or better, because we really want to, or when necessary, because we want to do what is right simply because it's right whether or not we want to, blessings can come. The blessings of healing, the blessings of lives and communities being made whole again. Oh, I'm Presbyterian, I'll tell you, God wills our forgiveness. But as the sermon series on the Lord's Prayer will make clear, God does want on earth what God enjoys in heaven. The expectations are high because... The consequences here on earth can be so dire. Hi, I'm Andrea Boone, producer of the Second on the Mount podcast. You've just heard a sermon by Dr. Anderson, who's sitting here with me. George, this sermon is interesting. It struck me as different from your other sermons. You normally focus on grace, but this one focuses more on law and its consequences. So would you elaborate a bit on your thoughts behind this sermon? Thank you for that question. You know, when I was growing up, much of the mainline church was reacting as my father did to a fundamentalist past where judgment and the fires of hell were regular fare on Sunday mornings. And then in reaction, the emphasis in the mainline church and in my own home was more on the unconditional love and grace of God that claims us despite our sins. But maybe we're in a new day where we need to talk more about consequences. I mean, many adults, including powerful ones, are speaking and acting in ways that simply would not be permitted in my wife's kindergarten class. We're also in an age when we think that abuse of others or of the planet or ethical norms in private and public life won't really lead to bad consequences because God's going to step in. God's going to make sure that doesn't happen. But Moses and Jesus though they both in their own ways trusted God, were very clear in saying that words and actions have consequences, some of which last generations. My sermon, I guess, was a reminder of that and a call to better behavior. Absolutely. Thank you for elaborating on that. 
So George, you gave a charge at the end of the service that I think fits this sermon especially well, but you were away from the microphone when you gave it. Would you mind repeating that charge for us now? Sure, Andrew, I'd be glad to. As you go from this place, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And when you can't pull that off, then do what is right because it is the right thing to do, whether you want to or not. Now may the grace, mercy, and peace of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit be with you now and always. Amen. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.